0: Well, let's start with who I am. I am, uh, my name is Evgeny Simkin, and I came to uh, America in 1979 as a Soviet Jewish refugee uh, at the age of seven, uh, brought here by my parents, um, leaving behind everything as most Jewish refugees from Soviet Russia did, uh, not leaving behind a very strong sense of gratitude uh, for America's uh, uh, open embrace and kind of saving us from what I've always described as the Soviet monstrosity. Uh, so I do have a heavily biased view against uh, autocracy writ large and specifically the Soviet autocracy. I have very little kind words towards uh, the notions of uh, communism as they were, uh, as it was imp- supposedly, you know, very ostensibly implemented in Soviet Russia. Um, and, you uh, so for the uh, most of my life I have not pursued uh, anything either activist or political in any way I've simply lived a a reasonably interesting but not very controversial uh, life mostly in the states Um, but I am very interested in things like sociology and history and neuroscience and uh, psychology and so all, everything relating to human behavior and and who we are as a species and where we're headed um and so i keep my ear very close to the ground on all those subjects even though i have absolutely no formal training in any of that um i do read quite a bit of everything that is uh, published basically for lay people along those lines and in those worlds um and uh i'm also uh and we'll get to what I'm up to in the last year and a half, but um, it's uh, part partly I'm acutely aware of uh, the, the history of Soviet Russia and how it uh, you know how, how it went through its various iterations, how it ultimately uh, <laughs> collided with reality and fell apart, and and then what happened after the fact. Um, and uh, yeah, so so in general, I'm this. Uh, kind of uh, world traveling, worldly, uh, I I don't know, I I don't know how to describe myself um, because I have no credentials. Uh, I'm very well trained in certain things but entirely of my own volition. Um, I never went to school anywhere uh, other than through a reasonably rigorous and and complicated life. uh, the training that I do have, uh, it's in software engineering and in music, but it is mostly self-attained through uh, rigor and uh, lots and lots of examination and reading and speaking to people uh, substantially more uh, talented and intelligent than me. <laughs> uh, well, my, my principal insight that I've gained through li- the life that I've led is that um the best thing you can be as a human being is kind and considerate and patient and generous and, um, and well-meaning. Um, Mm -hmm. but also that well-meaning people frequently cause a great deal of harm. (laughs) So, so also, you know, kind of low on hubris and high on self-reflection. Um, and the children that I've had, I, they are wonderful people. And, and, and uh, I would like think they're quite intelligent, but I've always, uh, steered them towards uh, self-reflection and kindness uh, ahead of being the smartest or, or, or the best at anything. Like being being the best at being kind is something that I, I, I teach them is the most important thing to aspire towards, and I aspire towards that. So uh, I fail a lot of the time, but I try. Uh, with that in mind, uh, what I've been doing professionally is that I am, I am a software engineer and have been for about twenty five years. I started my career uh, at CBS News. Uh, As an engineer, it was completely by dint of uh, serendipity that I wound up at CBS News. And we were working in the um, mid-90s, 96, 97, uh, on building the uh, CBS affiliate website, which was a very ambitious project in the very early days of the Internet. Um, And so I cut my teeth simultaneously on all of the most, at that time, uh, bleeding-edge technologies as they existed uh, vis-a-vis the Internet, uh, but also uh came very you know into very close contact with uh, journalism uh because CBS news um is i think still regarded as one of the most what's the right word uh they kind of founded news in in America at least uh p- partially right i mean Edward R. Murrow, people like that they they were kind of the the voices to whom all Americans turned for uh, understanding what is going on, there was, I think, absolute trust. Uh, there was no notion that anybody is trying to steer them into any uh, demagoguery. Uh, I don't think anybody thought that Murrow and his his uh, colleagues were particularly biased in any way um, at the time, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that it, this has been rethought potentially in the hindsight, but um, anyway, so so this was a very interesting moment for journalism because. Uh, again, very serendipitously, I had nothing to do with this, but at that, that was the moment where uh, journalism as a practice and as a profession went from being something that was funded uh, by other enterprises. CBS was very proud and we, we, we were given lectures by uh, Dan Rather uh, on how CBS uh, corporate was going to continue to fund the news division Indefinitely, and with you know a great a great deal of gusto, uh, on the backs of the David Lettermans and and CSIs of the world, um, and they will never have to worry about the fact that the the things they produce may not be necessarily very profitable, and that literally changed more or less overnight while I was there, um, and that was one of the uh, reasons for my departure. It was actually incredibly. Uh, painful to witness, and, and it was very distasteful. Uh, where basically overnight, the mandate was: we've just signed a deal with uh, you know some car manufacturer. I think it was Honda, um, and we want Hondas to come flying across the news, literally across the news. That was my mandate. I was like, I, I was an engineer building the website, and they they charged me with the the task of making uh, advertising fly across the news, which I uh, actually. Said no and left at (laughs) that time. So, um, so twenty five years goes by, and I'm an engineer doing engineering things, uh, having quite quite a bit of uh, luck in my life, and 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 lots of success in various enterprises. Um, And about ten years ago, I uh started recruiting Russian-speaking engineers in the former Soviet states uh, because they're very talented and I speak Russian and they speak Russian. And so there's this very mutually beneficial relationship where I have Western clients who uh, have Western client problems uh, and, and I can help them resolve them. And then these Russian-speaking engineers who uh, by American or by Western uh, monetary standards are substantially cheaper, uh, but I, I'm able to pay them what they want to be paid in order to have very good lives back in wh- wherever they happen to be. Um, and it still winds up being a huge savings for my clients. And so it, it's just a win-win-win across the board. So that, that's been going swimmingly up until last February when, uh, <laughs> when Russia invades Ukraine. And uh, I'm immediately presented with the reality that these guys uh, and they're they're all guys. It's not it's not it's not like I'm choosing to hire only men. That's just the way it works over there. Um, uh, they are all suddenly thrown into crisis, and I have to rapidly figure out where are they in fact, um, because up until that point it didn't matter. They were on Skype. <laughs> That's where they were. Uh, but now suddenly they're actually geographically positioned somewhere, uh, and some of them happen to be in Ukraine, and others happen to be in Russia and obviously the two problems are quite different they're both real problems the ukrainian problem is substantially worse uh, because their lives are on the line um and I, I scrambled to do what i can to help both sides at the time there really was very little i could do i i, I helped the russian guys to whatever extent i could to get out uh, and and get into turkey or uh, georgia uh for the ukrainian guys I, all i could do is basically guarantee their wages I, I offered to take a couple of their families most of them are single young men, uh, but the ones that have families, I offered to bring them to Canada, which is where I live now. Uh, they all politely declined um, and, you know, knock on wood. And I don't know which, which, which gods we believe in. I, I believe in very few, but um, so, so far all of them have, have been okay uh, to the extent to which you can be okay. in you in the present day Ukraine. Mm. Um, so, but that uh, situation very quickly led me to a feeling this very, a strong sense of, um, I don't know, I guess obligation, even though I'm not actually obligated to anything, but but I felt the very strong urge to help. And in these kinds of situations, we all feel this urge to help. And I suddenly realized that I was at this peculiar nexus where I could do more than just send money. Uh, which is what I would normally do in a situation where there's a tsunami or something else, that, that there's a crisis where I can really do nothing more than send money, um, because of my background, and in, 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 not my background, but my connections to the people who are from CBS or still at CBS, um, and the other connections that I'd made along the years. Like, for example, I became friendly uh, with Bill Kristol, uh, formerly of the Weekly Standard, now of the Bulwark Um, and, uh, and and I, I won't go into why we became friendly, but again, it's just total serendipity because I, I have absolutely no place in the world of DC politics. Um, but as it happens, I know him and, and a few other people in in that milieu. And so I had, have this idea for what I can do to, potentially uh help the situation and so i approached him and asked him if i did this would he be willing to help in some way and he was extremely enthusiastic and has been immensely helpful the entire time uh opened many many doors for me that i would never have been able to get through on my own um and uh so that's that's been that's been the story of what it is so the the next chapter is like what is it (laughs) So when I left, I was seven, and I lived in Saint Petersburg. And I have since learned from various acquaintances that Saint Petersburg was particularly difficult for for the Jewish community. Um, my friends from Moscow, for example, don't have a similar um, anecdotes from from their life. Um, but I, I'd rather not get into the the grisly details. But mm-hmm. uh, it was it was um, I mean by any by any standard definition, what I encountered was uh, abuse, um, pretty, pretty um, egregious abuse uh, at the hands of uh, not just the children, but uh, the adults as well. Um, it was um, it was malevolent and it took me many, many years to figure out how to forgive those people. Um, and uh, I think I have at this point, but uh, it, it, it all plays into my larger worldview about the nature of information and the way that people presented with the wrong information can very quickly be um bent towards very malevolent things Mm. the power of of tribalism the power of culture the power of uh repression the power of um, personal suffering and the need to blame somebody for it um it's um yeah, it, it, so I I don't think I experienced anything in any way uh, unique. Uh, it, it's it's what happens in societies where where there is a, a great deal of suffering, and then there has to be some scapegoat, and then
1: those scapegoats suffer more <laughs> than,
0: than, than the rest.
1: Without asking you to go into any of the details that are, that you you don't want to, but just on a general scale, just Russia generally, either the Jewish community or just all Russians, I don't know if a lot of people understand. What it looks—you see pictures of Moscow, you see pictures of Saint Petersburg—but what does it look like as soon as you get outside of a major city? Uh, It's—I know, I know this, this
0: term has bec- has fallen out of fashion, uh, but it's the third world. Uh, and, and when you look at the statistics, I—I I, so personally, I spent my years in Saint Petersburg. I visited Moscow a couple of times, but I—I I, I never really spent any time outside of the cities personally. So my. Why, I you know all I can do is con is, is say what I've read, uh, but um, you know I think it's pretty well understood that um, there there isn't even uh, indoor plumbing in in more than fifty percent of the dwellings in in Russia outside of the major cities, and people are still using outhouses. Um, and anecdotally, I know that there was uh, a great deal of. Um, surprise on the part of the russian soldiers in ukraine at the level of opulence and uh modernity that they encountered as they ransacked their way through through ukrainian cities and and the countryside um which again ukraine is not the most modern place on earth so for them to encounter it as you know this this really incredibly opulent and and modern um uh, shift from their norms uh, says, that it does say a lot about
1: what what it's like to live in, um, you know, outside the main city centers. Do you have any conflicted feelings with Russia in the sense of fondness for the culture, love of the culture of being, you know, having a, this. Conf- I mean, I know that I I have I have bitterness, but I'm also proud of my Russian ancestry. I'm just wondering where you what what the formula looks like for you.
0: So I, I really don't want to come across as either pompous or high-minded, but I, uh, as 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 a consequence of of being um, of of suffering this this kind of brutality, and as a consequence of then working through the math of why is it that this happened, I I've actually come to the conclusion that the notion of pride in ancestry is is a really it, it's not the best thing to do, mm. right? So, so I am impressed by many things that the Russians achieved in their history. Um, as, I guess as a nation, although, you know, to what extent, Dostoevsky is a product of Russia. Um, you know, if that if that particular man had been born in France. Would he have written something less brilliant? I don't know, uh, but I suspect not. <laughs> I, I, I suspect that uh, he would have simply written it in French. Um, so I, I, I'm a, a huge fan of many of the products of Russian culture uh, and and of the language uh, itself as a language. It's it's it, it, it's. Um, Poetry in Russian will make me cry in a way that uh, poetry in English simply won't. Like, I I have never been able to read English poetry with anything other than mild tedium. (laughs) Although, (laughs) perhaps I haven't (laughs) discovered the poetry that has yet to touch or move me. Um,
1: But Russian poetry does. So, um, What is it about Russian poetry, or what is it about the language that you find beautiful? I know that for people who don't understand it, it can have a sort of Germanic... Uh, harshness with the fricatives, and it sounds as if it, as if it's I think maybe some people would be surprised to to hear how how elegant and beautiful the language seems to people who know it. What do you find beautiful about the language
0: it yes yeah, i I can totally agree with the people who find it jarring to hear it's, it's, it's definitely it has a lot of harsh sounds, but once you move past the sounds it's the flexibility of the language, right? The, it, it's the way you can, I mean, everything is conjugated and then you can play with those conjugations and you can move words around and and, and a sentence can, remains uh, retains its grammatical correctness even if you start shifting all of the various parts, you know, terms of uh, um, the, the parts of the phrase around, right? So whereas in English, everything is much, much more strict and the moment you move things out of place, it immediately it's either it either you're you're taking some massive poetic license and you're it just starts starts to become nonsense. Um, that's just not the case in Russian. So there's there's this incredible flexibility. And so if I can use a weirdly visual metaphor, it's and and, and I guess it's a metaphor that's applicable to Russia as well. It's sort of like if you had uh, a ballet uh, performed by people whose elbows and knees didn't bend. Like that's English. Uh, versus versus the russian ballet where all their limbs not, not only bend but are also quite limber mm. so it, it's um that that's that's I mean my personal affinity towards it is rooted in that kind of thing
1: that's that's i love that description that's that's perfect um okay and so before we get on to chapter 2 which is where you start to get involved with everything post february 2022 Things took a turn in Russia long before that and not necessarily just with, with um, you know, obviously not just with the Soviet era, but things more recently went off the rails. You alluded to that in the beginning of the conversation, how things just went wrong. Uh, in your mind, how and where did things really go wrong in in modern Russia? Is it as simple as, well, Putin came to power or is there... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> nothing. Nothing is ever that simple because right. if Putin hadn't come to power, whoever came to power was going to be, was going to they were whoever was going to be Putining. They would they would be Putining, right? <laughs> I mean, and you can see in the way that people vie for power in Russia now; they're all just it, it's all just various takes on Putin. Um, so it's an incredibly difficult question. It's a question that that, is, that I, I don't think it's, it, I, I have the pay grade to answer from a sociological standpoint. Uh, I, I have my guesses. I have my intuitions. Um, I'm a thousand percent willing to be wrong on all of this. Uh, I'm very generous towards the Russian population as, as being members of, of humanity. And I don't think there's anything special about any members of humanity. Right? We're all reasonably simple apes. Who uh, have very um, fundamental and simple programming, where we pursue all of the same incentives and and, and have more or less the same interests. So I don't think that the Russian community is any more likely to 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 have landed in this particular ditch um, than any other community. If you if you line up all of the other variables, then you know I'm, I'm guessing that the Germans or the Japanese or anybody else would have driven into the same ditch. So. Um, my, my, my feeling is that there is a, a, an ethos, a culture in Russia where people, and, and this is incredibly ironic because they're the ones who really brought communism as a practice to the fore, but they genuinely do not believe as a culture in collectivist behavior, in, in, in true uh, socially united behavior and um and the place where that begins and we we exchanged a couple of words about this in an email uh, previously is in the folklore and in the fairy tales uh and this predates soviet russia if you look at the at the children's fairy tales of, of that that come from that area they prioritize um they prioritize greed they prioritize cleverness they prioritize gamesmanship um, they prioritize the ability to outwit and outsmart everyone, and end up with you know ho- holding the prize, all right? Whatever that prize is, there's all of the normal, uh, uh, the, the, the traditional values that we know as as growing up in the West of generosity and and sympathy and kindness. None of that's there. Like that is not what's prioritized. So so you have generations of children growing up. On this ethos of self-interest and greed, um, and so I th- like again, I'm guessing, <laughs> but, but that is a profound distinction between the two cultures, um, and, and 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 that culture I think leads to people who genuinely don't believe that working together towards something as a community as a society is either truly possible or the. Um, the most uh, the most appealing thing to do. It, it's uh, the people who do it are rubes, um, and Russians. Uh, I'm sure if you speak to them, and, and you do, I'm sure you will have encountered that they think that the people who pay taxes are basically rubes, right? Like that. Is, sometimes it's inevitable, but anybody worth their salt is doing everything in their in, in their power to outsmart the tax system, however they can, and pay as little as possible, cheating along the way if they can get away with it, etc. Um, and so, so again, it's very ironic that they establish ultimately a system that's based around true, like, you know, I mean, I I don't have to tell you about what communism is built upon in terms of its philosophy, but in, in, in a communist enterprise, everybody has to be on board. (laughs) You, You can't even have people who decide to opt out. Whereas in, in, in our world, people can opt out all they want. They just, you know, they'll, they'll wind up suffering various consequences, but it's not going to gulag until <laughs> mm. till, till just before. So, um, yeah, so so along comes uh, the, the end of the Soviet regime and along comes Putin and Putin does what he has to do to to grab the power that he's going to grab. Um, and this is, so in this case, uh, this, uh, like my, my philosophy is, 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 is a standing on very firm footing in this respect, which is that As any dictator ever, and as every dictator ever, Putin understands that the first thing he has to do is take charge of the media uh, and to wrangle it and control it and make sure that everybody understands that from this point forward, the only things that are said are things that he approves of. Um, And he does that with an iron fist. Um, and I, it, it's it's escaping me right now, but I can I can email it to you later. But he passes a specific law which has a really ironic and cynical name. It's something like uh, the the protection of truth or some some something like that. But but that's one of the very first things. In fact, it may be the very first thing that he actually passes as as a um, directive uh, with legal with legal consequences. Um, and and then it's basically a straight through line to the to the complete and total uh
1: shuttering of all um, of all free expression there- thereafter. Hmm. So then on to the project chapter 2. So the project uh, called samas.online
0: um and I'll explain what the name means in a second but but the it it comes from this fundamental understanding which is that free society is built upon a free press. It's not like they're not working in concert. It's not like the free press is a, is a convenient or, or a appealing thing to have as part of it. It's the cornerstone because the way that you organize in a free society is you have people who are responsible for some sort of leadership. Their inclination is always going to be to uh, to take more power than they need, more money than they deserve, et cetera, et cetera. And the public has very little access to what is really going on. And the free press are the only conduit that makes the public um, that gives the public the ability to introspect what their leadership is doing, and then to change it if they feel that it is egregious, but also it precludes the leadership from doing anything too egregious because they are aware of the fact that they're in the spotlight and that anything they do will be reported to the public. So a dictator or or an up-and-coming dictator understands that as long as the public is constantly aware of their behavior, they're not going to be able to spread their wings the way they really need to. So the first thing they do is they shut this down. It seems to me, it strikes me that in the West, it's very hard for people to get their minds around this this topic um, it, to the point where because we've had so many decades of unfettered and unrestricted free press, people to take it entirely for granted. And even if they don't, they can't imagine what it means to live in a society where everybody is... Um, told what to say and the things that they're told to say is what they say and so the people have absolutely no way to know what's actually going on and they and the people don't actually even recognize that they are being steered in certain directions because there are no con- con- contrary opinions there's no counter voicing and though you know people are naturally skeptical and people naturally have a sense of like well maybe I don't know the whole truth but ultimately they forget that and they are just mired in whatever they're being told by the state and then the dictator can really have their way i'm gonna say his way i don't think there are any female dictators so um the dictator can have his way with the population um and that is what putin is doing that is what lukashenko is doing that's what the iranian mullahs are doing that's what the chinese communist party is doing and so on and so forth anyone who wants to have their way with the people they shut down information access and then they uh they create a deluge of nonsense or semi-lies that the population is then inundated with. So my feeling on this, again, like I, here I'm – like I would be very surprised if I'm wrong. Um, and so I thought, OK, well, what can I do to undermine Putin's propaganda? And it turned out that I have uh, – had, and now we've built, an idea of exactly how to do that – uh, and how to get around his uh, censorship of all of the media that is exposing his lies, um, and give people in Russia uh, the the ability to both reach that content and to distribute it amongst themselves, which is even more important, um, because in fact it's the sharing that makes um, that makes this mechanism as effective as it as it uh, is. So, what is Samizdat? Samusdot literally translates to self-publication and it was a grassroots undertaking that soviet russians uh utilized to smuggle content that was forbidden by the soviet censors into the country from outside the country Uh, and then they would make people would make their own copies it was incredibly laborious and and tasking but they would make their own copies uh, of whatever it was they were smuggling in it was not always news frequently it was literature or music or anything i mean so much was censored by, by, by the Soviet censors that it was it's really uh, surreal. Um, and people would make their own copies and distribute them amongst themselves. And this was the mechanism that made it possible for Soviet Russians to know what's going on outside the world, uh, in the you know the, the larger, wider world. Um, and Samizdat is uh, credited by m- most people who study the subject. Uh, as being a a vital part of what made possible for for the Soviet Union to end the way that it ended, Uh, because it takes the population's understanding of what's going on for this level of regime change, uh, especially without uh, violence.
1: Hmm. First thing the dictators do when they come into power, is shut down free speech, first thing you need to take it back is the ability to communicate with free speech. Correct. Yeah. Are there any particular areas of focus when you're going through to what, to what to publish, what to put out there, what to share, do you, how do you make your selection process and themes, topics, subjects? Uh, so I'm completely new to the world of journalism and I don't want to uh,
0: overstep. I, I'm working with two unbelievably talented and actually well-renowned journalists. One is Anna Trubachova, who is a Belarusian journalist now living in New York. Uh, and the other is Stas Kutcher, who is a Russian journalist who's also now living in New York. Uh, both of them have very, you know, decades-long se- seasoned careers. All a- anybody who's from Belarus knows Anna, and anybody who's from from Russia knows Stas. So they they are both very, very, uh, uh, both famous and uh, talented and effective um, people. So um, I don't uh, meddle in what we. Um, in what we publish. Uh, th- th- I have handed that task entirely over to them. Uh, the the publications that we publish, we only have one criteria. Like So so let, let me just clear about what we're doing. Uh, on our website, we have sort of a bucket of um, publications, which th- you just, you, you go and you click on a publication, you wind up on their front page, and then you read whatever you want. There's about... Fifty-five of them there. Uh, I, I, or th- that number changes and grows all the time. But, but I'm going to say fifty-five. And then every day, uh, Anna, uh, who's our executive editor, she goes through many of those publications, and she finds the stories that she thinks are the most pertinent and the most relevant, the most interesting. Um, and then she puts those into the news well. That's kind of the the thing that makes our site. Uh, kind of worthy as, as as a destination for people every day uh, so um, so we that's those are kinds of the two roles we play one is that we give people access to the entire publication um, and then the other is that we is, is that we editorialize in the sense that we pick the stories from those publications that we find the most interesting and we uh, and we place them in in, in into people's uh, you know in we, 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 we highlight them we put them in front of people and um, but but the only criteria for being added as a publication on our service is that you be banned by some autocrat. <laughs> so in effect, we're letting uh, Putin and Lukashenko and the Chinese Communist Party dictate uh, who is worthy of uh, their attention because they're the ones who ban them. So we're the ones who unblock them. Uh, like we, there's no other criteria. Like that's the the sole criteria for being added. And and we prefer that people. Uh, ask us to add them to the roster. There are only a few publications that we're using without permission, and the only reason we're using them without permission is because I've been unable to reach uh, their uh, their management teams, uh, and th- they're all the Farsi uh, publications, so uh, Iran International, Radio Farda, um, Al Jazeera, uh, et cetera. Like th- th- there's just a handful, but I, if, you know, I would, if, of course, if they said, please remove
1: us, uh, from your, you know, distribution, we would, uh, but I have not been able to reach them. Hmm. Do you track traffic? Do you have met that you look for as metrics of success or something along those lines? We have actually
0: incredible abilities to track traffic in spite of the fact that we are, uh, we, part of what we do is we remove all of the cookies and all of the other stuff that mm-hmm. websites generally put into their, like there's a header with a bunch of JavaScript in there. We eliminate all of that to, uh, to, to uh, protect the readers because we don't want anyone's browser to have any evidence of the fact that they were uh, reading content for which they may get into trouble. Um, but so the the answer is technologically we have all of the facility to know who who's reading in broad strokes right we 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 have a region we know that in Moscow we have x number of readers that are reading these specific uh, publications and we have all of that data um, the thing we don't have unfortunately at the moment is the resources to expand our operation such that we can handle the tens of millions of uh, people that would come to us every day, um, those people are essentially, they're, they're behind a dam and waiting. Uh, so if you take publications like Medusa and TV Rain and MediaZona and Ukrainian Pravda and Echo of Moscow, and I, I can, you know, the, uh, I can tour, I can I can list another 15 publications and so forth. Collectively, they have somewhere between 50 and 100 million uh, daily readers uh, scattered across the world, lots of them living in diaspora, and we are co- collaborating with them. And at any moment, if I asked them to, they would start telling their readers to use our service to get to them. And they would, right? They, they have no reason not to. So so essentially, I have this pent-up audience of tens of millions of people who we could bring to the platform tomorrow. But for that, we don't have the resources to expand our... Uh, the, to, to, to to spin up enough servers to handle that kind of traffic. And also, once we have that kind of traffic we would immediately incur the full wrath of the Raskam Nadzor and the Belarusian censors and the Iranian censors, et cetera. Um, and then we would, we would then potentially lose the game of whack-a-mole, which we're poised to win if we have the resources we need in order to rapidly spin up the domains. And we haven't talked about what the thing does and how it works, but, but it's all hinged on a kind of brinkmanship where we spin up domains faster than the censors can knock them down and uh, facilitate the transfer of this linkage, uh, you know, m- more efficiently than our competitors are able to to
1: uh, destroy them. So you're uh, kind of creating a bunch of clone sites that all will be linked to from the same place, so they can keep going to the same place. And if one of the clone sites gets shut down, another one pops up in its place, like a like a hydra sort of. And the uh, for the browser would never know the difference. Essentially,
0: I mean, if we if we get into the nitty gritty, that's not exactly right. But for the purposes of, of, of a layperson's understanding of what we're doing, yes, we're spinning up uh, t- dozens and dozens, and ultimately hundreds and then thousands of just these random looking domains, um, and then we're letting the people themselves find the articles they're interested in, which are then living on these domains arbitrarily, and then share those links out into into Iran, into Russia, into Belarus, and then those links develop a life cycle of their own where. You know, you you, you send one to your old neighbor in in Kirkutsk who you know is a Putinite and who you know will never install a VPN and you're still friends with him on Facebook or on WhatsApp and you say to him, hey, this just happened. And he's like, well, I don't see any evidence of that. So then you send him a link to it and you say, well, here's some evidence, you know, and then you have a conversation. That's the the ethos of how it works and why this particular approach, I believe, is much more effective than VPN Mm -hmm. because... VPN is something that requires the user to know that they are needing to find something and then actively looking for it versus the masses and masses of people who are living in, in, you know, relative discomfort and a complete unawareness of where to go looking for information or what information they'd be looking for. In fact, they don't believe there is any information to be found. They're comfortable and confident in what they're being told. So. That's the so then you arm or we arm the diaspora and and the you know and there's millions upon millions of people no longer living in Russia and then of course there's the, the you know they're they it's hard to know what the number is but let's call it 25 percent of the Russians who do believe that they are being lied to and and need some means by which to dispel those lies amongst their friends and relatives so that's precisely what we are providing.
1: This The system sounds great and if you're in a situation Like you mentioned where you want to share it with somebody Who's you know living in another city In Russia and you can do that safely And sort of maybe plant some Seeds for your Putinite friend but How do you get the word out in the first place How do people come to know about This uh, the Word of mouth or how do you Reach other Other than I mean Do you do any kind of promotion yourself Or do you just hope that it's organically spreads word of mouth on its own
0: uh, so it's kind of a two-part question two-part answer we haven't done any meaningful promotion for the reason I stated because we can't ha- like when this thing catches fire we just don't have the resources to to, to withstand the barrage of traffic but um, so in the West we are you know I'm doing these kinds of interviews and and actually getting a lot of traction with you know we've been covered in Business Insider and Wired and Fast Company and The Nation. I can, There's a. I mean, the, the, in the West, it's actually been uh, pretty easy to get the word out that we exist, although I still have a pain point where, for whatever reason, CNN uh, continues to constantly cry into its beer and these stories about how the Russians just have – there's no way to reach them, right? And I, I just keep waiting for them to notice that, yes, there is. <laughs> but... Um, but aside from that, like in, 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 in Russia and Belarus, at least, like we can't, I can't talk about Iran yet, but in Russia and Belarus, as I said, we have, um, we have organizations that currently have tens and tens of millions of active users. So the moment that we're ready to be noticed by that world... They will promote us. I mean, they're waiting. They, they, they're they'd be happy to. They're you know I've I've met with all of them on numerous occasions. They're incredibly enthusiastic and grateful that we exist and that we're there to to proffer them. And they will be actively telling their millions strong audiences to use us to get to the back to them. And the thing is that once people come to us, the the there's um there's a feedback loop which is very uh, powerful, which is that. So let's say Medusa, for example, they are a fantastic ally. Uh, Medusa has 25 million active users. If they tell their users to come to us through to, to come to Medusa through us, then the first thing people will encounter when they come to us is other stuff. They'll find Medusa there, but they'll also see many other publications. And so there's a network effect where audiences for Medusa will suddenly notice other things that, that they had no idea existed and will suddenly be engaged by. And so everybody's audiences are going to wind up growing as a result of the, all of these individual outlets sending their uh, audiences our way. It's just the, the, so this world of pro democracy advocacy, which I'm new to and that I uh, ventured into a year and a half ago, I am. Um, I'm really struck by how um, inefficient it is how uh, how many uh, people get in their own way how many organizations have all of these bizarre bureaucratic hoops to jump through uh, that they cannot simply eliminate like nobody's in power to eliminate the hoops when they see something that's truly effective um, and and you know I, I I'm on the one hand I'm constantly invited to all these prestigious conferences and and, and events, and everybody uh, is just completely in awe of everything that we've achieved and how amazing it is, and everybody is very impressed. So if I was able to fund this thing on Attaboys, we, we, would, be, huh. we would be massively successful, right? We'd be more successful than Facebook. Uh, just... Uh, last week, a colleague of mine, fin- like I, I've been, I've been predicting that this thing works in China for a year and a half. I've been told by everyone that it absolutely can't possibly, and that the Chinese firewall must be too sophisticated, and that we are just, you know, we're just, we're just smoking dope in our prediction that it will work in China. And then my colleague went to China uh, finally and uh, tested it out, and it works perfectly. He was able to read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, He sent me giddy screenshots of him reading the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal from. Oh wow, that's uh, really cool. I believe it was in Shenzhen. Uh, Yeah, and so, but the thing is that as an engineer, I had no way to imagine how it wouldn't work. I was I was confident it would work because it would require some level of um, you know sort of pseudo magic for the Chinese to be able to preempt this, having never even bothered to try because nobody's doing this
1: i love this project i love the work you guys are doing i mean i mean i love the fact that you're slipping through these technological defenses it's sort of like that line from the movie doing this the slow blade penetrates the shield yeah, yeah yeah i think of that all the time yeah <laughs> and i and i also i mean i of course uh, i love the fact that this is a, just a very real and immediate immediate example of how Sunlight is the best disinfectant, but like th- this right here is journalism combating autocratic abuse directly, not in some sort of metaphorical sense, but like people are, are getting switched on. And to see that happening, especially when, you know, I, I believe that the hero is not just made by, by their own traits, but, the, but heroism is defined by the, um, the enemy. The greater the enemy, the greater the hero. And when it's journalism against autocratic dictatorships, when it's journalism against Russia or against, you know, North Korea, what have you, that's that's uh, that's an epic battle. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Getting ready to go to hell in a handbasket, and the problem is that I'm terrible at basket weaving, uh, and so it's uh, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to have the worst of it. Are you referring to uh, Osama bin Laden's letter to America? That's a piece of it, this, <laughs> that, but but this is this has all been uh, has all been kind of mounting. I'm sure that uh, you're you, you, I mean you, you're in this
0: space. You know what's happening. Yeah. And, um, I'm increasingly of the opinion that um, that we made a terrible mistake in climbing down from the trees.
1: And, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I share your sentiment. You know, just when I think that it couldn't possibly, like, we this is it. We've hit the bottom. It can't it can't get worse than this. Um, and then I wake up the next day, and it gets worse. Um you know I was I, I was listening to a Jewish New Yorker woman uh on Clubhouse the today the you know the app where people the the sort of like voice social media app and um she was explaining that people were asking her people in the room who were not from New York were asking her what's it like in New York right now being Jewish does it has it changed anything for you and she's like oh yeah I don't go outside now with the Star of David anymore for fear of my own safety. I see swastikas all over the place, uh, people chanting anti-Semitic slogans, people ripping down images of kidnapped uh, Jewish children. It's everywhere. It's it's like, it's like a whole new world except it's not a different world. It's the same world. It's just this stuff has been um, – it's been among us all along. People didn't just become this way overnight. It, we just – They've been here the whole time. We just didn't know it. It's, it's terrible. That's that's part of the th- – that's that right there is part of what makes this so horrifying. It's kind of like if you imagine a family member molesting your kid and you're like the molestation is evil. But then also you, you have to do the mental sort of re- like reassessment of like, oh, my god. I've known this person all this time and it turns out they're a monster. It's like, oh, my god. Like my fellow Americans, it turns out so many of them are these – anti-Semites who are just – and I'm putting aside the the, the people who are just, you know, um, Palestinian rights, obviously. I'm Mm -hmm. not – but there are a lot of people who are very much pro-terrorist, pro-atrocity. And maybe in the early days, there was like – you could be like, no, they're not really. They're just a little bit swept up and they're just kind of – Hmm. Well, we've seen we've since seen some examples where it just gets clearer and clearer that some of these people are completely on board.
0: Uh, this is the thing. I have not been in, under any illusions uh, that any of this uh, isn't the way it is. But that's because my impulse has always been that we are so ahead of our skis, right? As a species, like we 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 have completely abandoned our nature. We we have re- rejected our nature, um, and c- because our nature is horrible, it is, and and nature is horrible, right? And we have all these payons to how glorious and beautiful nature is, but but it isn't. It's trying to kill us all the time. Like all we do, all the time as a species, is desperately try to stave off nature's psychopathic desire to kill us, um, and then we ourselves are these brutal. Monstrosities, but we hate that idea, and so we tell ourselves all sorts of fantastic um, bedtime stories about all of our virtues and all of our kindnesses and compassions. And they, those do exist in, in very specific regulated environments. But the moment we're in any danger, the moment we're hungry, the moment we're horny, the moment we sense any, anything out of the ordinary, we are raging homicidal lunatics. So, and, and always have been. So, like to me, this isn't like this is what's happening right now. And 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 here I'm going to pretend that I'm a sociologist. Is that human beings are surrounded by what they can only define as crazy, right? And I'm using the word colloquially, but you will hear it in the media all the time. Like you will hear people define things they it's not there's no longer that dis- they disagree with it right it's crazy they, they see what's around them as crazy and crazy is inherently dangerous right crazy is unpredictable crazy can't be put into some normalized place so when you're near crazy you need to either move away from the crazy or you need to kill the crazy like th- that's those are your only two options you need to either control them or annihilate them and so, yes, they are enraged. They see, you know, they, they, I, I don't know that they're necessarily anti-Semitic as such. Like, sure, they, they the Jews are easy to hate because we've, you know, we've always been that kind of like default uh, group that is at the heart of all evil. So why not hate them? But, um, but I, I don't think that this has been like a hidden, you know, like a, a, a hidden thing that they've just been... Festering in. It's just they 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 don't care as long as they're safe and they have their Netflix. They don't care. Mm. And the moment they're then suddenly they need something to take their rage out on, and of course the the, the nearest Jew will do.
1: Yeah, I um <clears throat> really recently had a fascinating conversation with the British sociologist David Hirsch, and uh, he, he he's I'm coming around to the same perspective. What I mentioned to him was the um, the concept of the white. Of, sorry of the ghost skin I explained to him that this is you know you're familiar you're right so the idea that there are these skinheads who walk among us like ghosts we don't see them because they don't they don't openly say what they're thinking and they so they conceal their true beliefs and while these people do exist uh, Hirsch said he doesn't think that that's what we're seeing now because he thinks that what that a lot of these people are not Hiding their secret anti-Semitism, they actually deeply believe that they are anti-racist, that they are fighting uh, discrimination, that they are on the side of the oppressed, and that they are on the right side of history and everything else. And um, yeah, I mean, they're—I mean, what they're saying and doing doesn't actually map onto reality. But uh, the you know that it's that is an important observation because. Um, well, I think it's just perennially true that people will will do even the most like even you know the the most extreme and classic example is is to reach for uh Hitler and even he believed that he was you know, a good guy and that he, what he was doing was like for the betterment of Germany or, you know, whatever. It's like that, that comedy skit, I forget the name of the show, but it's like these two Nazis in a trench and they turn to each other and they're like, are we the baddies? Like, wait a minute, we've got a skull and crossbones on our, on our caps. Well, wait a minute, are we the bad guys? And I truly think that, that, yeah, uh, other than pure psychopaths, I think that a lot of even the Nazis probably, true, probably believed like, oh, well, this is the right thing to do. And David Hirsch has this concept, the community of the good. It's a powerful concept because it is amazing what you can get people to do if you can simply convince them that the, that this is this is the altruistic thing to do. This is you're fighting oppression. You're, you know, I mean, for example. You can get people to think that Osama bin Laden was right all along. <laughs> like that's one of the things that you can get people to to move toward. If you can, see, you do You're not going to get them to do that by saying like, "Let's just all be evil." You're going to get I mean, them to go there by saying, "This is actually good."
0: Yeah, I think that this is. I, I don't. I don't mean to. I don't mean to take anything away from Hirsch, but I don't like. To me, this seems so so fundamentally obvious that it doesn't seem like any kind of insight at all of course everybody wants to be the hero of their story of course the nazis yeah. were fighting a glorious battle to rid the world of, of the vermin that 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 stifle all of its glorious uh, you know area in progress that would otherwise be uh, of course osama bin laden was a hundred percent fanatically convinced that he was on the right side of history as are all the other jihadists there's i don't i mean i can't imagine what's in the heart of actual mr vladimir putin but certainly the russians around him are absolutely convinced that they are doing the right
1: thing in their mm-hmm. current invasion of yeah Ukraine. it's like, everybody everyone i mean the one exception would be if you believe that you're talking about a literal psychopath who genuinely does not does not care about right or wrong or good or bad or in and just probably views all of morality as naive silliness, yeah. and and that's what one to three percent of the population so like the vast majority of the time you're not talking about those people we like to think of people like hitler or or other dictators as psychopaths makes it, it's easier to sleep at night thinking that that type of that type of psychology doesn't lurk within the minds of most people in the world, including possibly ourselves, that we could be taken advantage of and persuaded. But as Jordan Peterson, the clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson has often said, you know, don't be fooled into thinking that if you had lived at that time, you would have known better. You you know, you might have been swept up in it too and you need to recognize that so that you can guard against it in yourself.
0: Right, but also how many of us, if we're going to be honest and if we're going to put ourselves through these kinds of absolutely grotesque and gruesome thought experiments, how many of us would sacrifice our own children willingly in order, like for the betterment of mankind, right? Like if you ask me honestly, and and I'm going to confess to something monstrous right now, if you ask me honestly how many children would I be willing to see die in order for my children to live, My answer would be pretty much all of them. (laughs) Like, whatever. Whatever it takes so long that my children continue to live. Now, I understand how, I mean, you could say that's psychopathic, right? But I think most people feel this way. So there's definitely a sense of
1: psychopathy in all of us, depending on what the circumstances are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think. uh, I, I forgot who... It may have been Constantine Kissin in one of his Oxford lectures where he said something to the effect—I can't remember the exact phrasing—but he was talking about a parent's love for their children and what they wouldn't do for it, and you know, if like, what parent wouldn't, if they, if they, you know, to save the life of their child, with the the links that they wouldn't go to, and yeah, it's—I mean, you know, you, uh, parents, that's that's a powerful, and if you and if you can be convinced that a certain action is the way to secure the future for your children. So it's, it's terrifying what humans are uh, willing to sign up for. Um, well, right. And there's no better way to get people to become psychopaths than to convince
0: them that their children are in danger. In fact, they're much more likely to become psychopathic if you bypass you're in danger and go straight to the your children are in
1: danger. All right. The famous trope. Think of the children. children, The famous. Yeah, that's been that that seems to come up again every 10 years in American life. Think of the children in in a different context. And yes, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, So uh, tell me what's new with you. So since last we've spoken, um,
0: there's been there's been so if we're talking about that online, then there there have been a couple of developments. One is that we have uh, split the organization into uh, a nonprofit and a for profit. The for profit, which is now called
2: Ratatasker, uh, which is how do you spell Nordic- that? R a t a t o s k e r. Got It's it. the it's the it's the Nordic squirrel
0: that carries information. Uh, up the tree of life from the serpents and the roots to the eagles and the branches.
1: Nice, uh, nice. I like the symbolism.
0: The symbolism is very very apt for what it is. So that's going to be the for-profit technology company that does all of the the, the linking and the distribution and the, the hosting and all of the stuff that actually makes the, the stuff we do in terms of distribution of information possible. And then Samazan Online is just going to become a non-profit media aggregator of news Uh, It's going to develop its own editorial voice, um, but it's going to uh, – we're going to remove the uh, Iranian um, aspect and uh, spin out a whole new Farsi language and – well, English Farsi uh, thing that's just a separate thing. It's going to be named something else. It's going to be operated by other people. Um, I am at present in talks with some uh, interesting – People in the world of uh, Iranian, uh, you know, media in exile that are fighting the mullahs. So uh, I'm really um, optimistic that that's going to turn into
1: something real. Mm, in the next I time. wish the best for that project. That that's such a, a needed project. Uh, and is it is it going by the same name as before, Free Persian Press?
0: No, it's actually so the the most likely candidate for this. Um, so it's Hamagani. Hamegani, um, which the people who I'm working with say will resonate uh, deeply with uh, Iranian expats, uh, because it um, it refers to it's it's very similar to Samasdot in that it, it has a certain definition that uh, everyone will. It, it's, it's, I am my understanding is that it relates to like open communication or.
1: Where can listeners go if they want to financially support your project?
0: Oh, well, we, we can accept their donations right from
1: summons.online.org. Okay. Uh, there's a there's the donate button there. Okay. So the, the thing that I've been focusing on a lot lately, and this, this actually
0: came out of the uh, ferocious Google story, which uh, I told you about before, but, but uh, Google's Discover, which is their news feed in Android, is disseminating most of the pro-Russian anti-Ukrainian propaganda in Russia at this point, point. Um, and we approached Google. We've been telling them about this for close to ten months now, and they every time we discuss it with them, they um, you know they they grab their pearls and say, "Oh my!" But then nothing changes, and then there's no nothing. Just it, it just goes on unabated, uh, tens of millions of clicks a day by the. Russian populace to information that uh, reinforces everything that their other channels of propaganda tell them day in and day out. Um, and, but this time with uh, Google's, you know, es- essentially Google's stamp of approval because it's coming out of their newsfeed. Hmm. Uh, and, and since in Russia there's no access to any reality, this is all the news they get. Um, so, the, the, so that's you know that's what it is. And and that, but that led me down a very very interesting rabbit hole of speaking to various. Um, um western news outlets i won't name names because i don't want to shame anybody but uh, major major news outlets right your audience knows all of them quite well including individuals who your audience probably likes and is fans of and the response from them has not been we don't want to write about it the response from them has been essentially I, we don't really see a story here like who cares all right so google has some garbage in their newsfeed in russia you know whatever and so initially i was really confused by this but then upon closer examination i realized that the western press writ large has completely lost uh i'm gonna i'm gonna use sam harris's expression they've lost the plot i guess it's not his expression he uses it a lot um they've lost the plot as to what their role in society is or what journalism's role in society is and so when they hear that Google is disseminating all sorts of garbage, uh, they, can't, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that something coming up off of an Android phone into somebody's uh, mind is going to meaningfully augment or undergird their point of view. Because right? in the West, that's not how things work anymore. In the West, the New York Times or any other major publication, the Wall Street Journal, I'm not singling out the Times, can, can write anything they want, And they can, you know, the the Times can write Trump bad over and over and over again. Um, And the people who agree with this point of view will appreciate it being restated. And the people who disagree with this point of view will simply ignore it and write it off as, ah, there's that left-leaning Times. But no one is meaningfully informed by anything. So the news media sees themselves essentially as entertainment. And this is how they make their money. Uh, and th- that's not new, right? Like that, they they simply are as as sensationalist as they can be in order to attract as much attention, so or they can generate their uh, their dollars. And um, I'm a, a very enthusiastic capitalist, so I have nothing against them earning their money. But the nature of their of their underlying mission, which uh, used to be to be, you know, that fourth estate to hold the leader's feet to the fire and to inform the public as to what is going on so that the public can take uh, the, the steps they need to take in order to hold their leadership to account, that is no longer their role. Like, they, they don't see it that way. So, so they don't grasp the fact that the reason that Ukraine is still at war and that their people are being butchered is because the Russian community, the Russian population is Uh, fundamentally confused about reality and are supporting Putin's uh, you know, insane uh, engagement therein. Um, And because they have no exposure to an alternative point of view, um, because they are inundated with the lie that Ukraine is overrun by Nazis uh, and they need to go and and defeat them, Mm -hmm. they... Are you know very very stoically uh, braced for however long that project is going to take, um, and and I'm my understanding is that the people at Google simply cannot grasp how relevant their reinforcement of that mindset is. Like it's not it's not yet another way to, you know, just kind of say one thing that the Russians understand. There's another side to and and just can ignore mm-hmm. if they feel like ignoring it.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I I think that's insightful. There's I've been thinking about this myself, um, and perhaps in particular uh, since my firing, because it, there's a there's a connection there. But I, I was thinking about this before that because of things that I've seen elsewhere, and just the the turn from the desire to uh, give the public the truth or or deliver the truth. Uh, to giving the public what they already perceive as the truth which is not the same as informing and enlightening that's actually when you're just telling someone what they want to hear that's almost can be seen as a form of lying Uh, and so and this is this is I mean this is what happened with me where where the paper wanted to please uh, a, a mob essentially. But this is also what I see happening on a more broader scale with with the media, not just in the United States but beyond that, where there is a real, with this sort of silo effect of you know you have right wing media, you have left wing media, and they're trying to speak to a right wing or left wing audience and tell them not the truth, right? Because that would require that uh, that on occasion or maybe even frequently, um, for example, Fox would would say something that would come off as incredibly left. If they're trying to tell the truth, some truths are going to be left and some are going to be right. Uh, but obviously, they're not going to do that. They're not going to tell their audience things that might have the optics of uh, leftism because their audience isn't there for the truth. They're there to hear their own thoughts reflected back to them, which – Um, that's fine if, if I think for social media, but not for the news, that is a direct violation of the one thing that, that journalism is supposed to be based upon, which is truth. Uh, and that, that, that's truth that I, that for me, um, from that you derive two of the most important the two most important journalistic principles, and one is the principle of just of factual accuracy, fact checking, facts finding, and all of that. And the other is um the principle of free speech, which is the the ability for people to think out loud uh, and explore open mindedly and debate. and that part of the reason for that is because that is another means of fact finding and also Sort of, what's the word? What, what am I looking for? Um, kind of like uh, uh, um, testing ideas for their truthiness, essentially, against other. These are not the kind of ideas that you can just Google the answer. It's not like what's the capital of China. These are more nuanced things that y- you kind of you kind of sort them out by engaging with others and and you know the kind of more nuanced truths. Um, And there are papers that are basically saying, no, we will have none of that because a certain group of like angry, woke, hysterical liars uh, wants a particular version of the truth and we're just going to act accordingly. And you see this happening all across the West, I find. And I think in particular, I've seen some – I've seen some things post-October 7th that fits into this uh, pattern that is just extremely disturbing and deplorable and um, I know where we need to get to course correct and I know what we need to, to do but I don't know how we're actually going to accomplish that given the current state of affairs in our society like
0: so let me phrase Let, let, me, let me ask this because now no, I'll, I'll 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 turn the interview around <laughs> and ask you a question. <laughs> the thing is that we we of course corrected many times right over the course of our civilization, and 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 we've uh, I, I mean civilizations have collapsed, uh, and and the the way that they collapsed was reasonably local. So the collapse of you know the the Mayans or the Aztecs had little to no effect on on things going on in, in Asia or, or, or Europe or Africa. Um, but that's just not the way that civilization would collapse today, right? If civilization collapses today, it's going to be a global collapse. Um, because we're so so completely intertwined. Um, and so, like, what does that look like? What does that collapse look like? And also, what does it look like for it not to collapse? Because this is the part where I'm, I'm really having a hard time with like, if we dodge this bullet, What's the next bullet right there's always the next bullet and 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 my concern is that every time we dodge a bullet um, like like we dodged the bullet in the um, in the 80s for example uh, when like the, the the fate of the planet came to you know one guy <laughs> uh, named what was his name Stanislav. Something or Hippov or some so, I, and this is the, this is the insane part. Like I'm forgetting the guy's name. He literally saved civilization, right? All of it came to one dude, and and he, I, I'm sure you know this story, right? Where he's just like re, he, he's the one guy that's refusing to push the button yeah. on, on, on the nuclear retaliation to what turns out to be a, a computer glitch and a mirage. But but you know, there in the bunker, and sure, sure looked to the other guys on his team like. That, that the world, the war had started, and they were supposed to. They had some some number of seconds, right? Not mm-hmm. even, not, even mm-hmm. not hours, right? Like they had like a minute or two or five, something mm-hmm. like that. To, we're retaliating, and if they had pressed that button, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. There would not be um, modern civilization today. We'd be living in in, in a post apocalyptic um, Holocaust, uh, you know, hell. So we dodged that bullet, and we got. A few extra decades out of it, and here we are. And the question is, what's the next bullet going to look like? And let, and then the question is, well, how do we dodge it? All right, well, I don't know, but let's say we do. <laughs> then what? <laughs> like, what's what? What's the next? What's the next bullet? Right. So, if we're talking about truth, like I really think that the ship on truth has sailed, and and people chasing after it are are not going to find it, right? And then that's not because I'm some sort of postmodernist. Uh, uh I, don't, I don't even know what the next word should be but uh, I'll just leave it at post-modernist I, I, I think there are truths to be known and I have many in my head that I firmly believe but our success as a species cannot depend on us having uh, agreement upon uh, all sorts of things that we really, we obviously can't
1: Is that can't because... Agree- Is that because you think that at the end of the day, you're never going to be able to convince a certain percentage of people of the actual – if you were to lay out the things that you think to be obviously true, there's always going to be 30 to 60% of people who will completely disagree and you won't be able to show them evidence. They're they're not going to be reasonable. They'll just gaslight you Um, and is that the problem as you see it? That that is the problem,
0: and and the range of disagreement varies from something as moderately consequential as did Trump win the last election, right? Which is a which is a pretty pretty large truth around which to disagree, uh, and the people who believe that Trump won the last election uh, are reasonably numerous, and they are quite convinced. I don't think that they're doing it for the lulls. Um, whereas the people who are convinced that the earth is flat and there, I'm not sure that they're convinced. Maybe they are just, you know, just, just, just trying to have a, a laugh, but, but it's let's assume they are convinced that conviction is h- highly inconsequential, right? Other than them being kind of foolish, nothing changes around anything they do, regardless of whether they're a doctor or, or even if they're an airline pilot, right? Like yeah. I used to as my pilot knows, the earth is round. We're good, but in fact, it doesn't even matter. The plane knows the earth is round. The pilot's mostly a passenger at this point, so whatever. L- let them think what they think. But then we get to the people who think that Trump won the election, and they have strong convictions around uh, good convictions, right? They're they're again, they're on the side of the good. They believe in our founding principles, democracy, blah blah blah, and they believe that the country has been stolen, right? So that they, yes, they're they're unhappy, and and. That's a very serious disagreement. But even that pales in comparison to, like, devout jihadists, right? Like, mm-hmm. like what, what are you going to agree on with somebody who has just a completely different metaphysical understanding of reality? Like, there's no
1: agreement there. There's no conversation there. Well, um, I'm not a pacifist. So I don't feel that the solution to an engagement with a violent jihadist is that we have to find agreement in uh, intellectual discourse, and all I can say about that is that I'm grateful that um, that I live in a time when the the overwhelming strength is on the side of liberal democracy, at least for now. And so, if it does come down to a street fight, uh, we will win every single time, at least at least for now. Um, you know that. That's not always a guarantee, and liberal democracy is a fragile thing. That's why it's so important that we that we protect. Right.
0: Yes, for the moment we have the upper hand, but you know, <laughs> you, you throw in a little bit of gene splicing and CRISPR, and uh, you know, like you 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 give it twenty years, and the kind of evil that people will be able to conjure in their basements uh, is going to be. You know the kinds of things that currently are in
1: level five CDC facilities, um, and then it, who has the upper hand shifts very rapidly. And my pushback to that would be to say that I really do think that this political, sociopolitical political phenomenon is actually an existential threat. It is a very powerful threat, and part of the reason for that is because um, we are animalistic. And I suppose you could say that there's something – there's a kind of an almost uh, communist uh, utopian effort to reform the human soul and you know create a society where we're all having this kumbaya moment and there's no more poverty. And that all sounds like really wonderful. Again, I'm not a monster. I don't want to like reject the, the world where we all get along and there's no more racism and poverty. That sounds great. But like until we – until we get there, until other things like sort of are in place first, we don't just start acting like we're there. You know, you don't start taking v- uh, violent convicts and 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 putting them in situations where they can prey upon other people because you want to have a more humanistic approach to you know criminal behavior. For example, and so we do still have these these um, uh, in- instinctive react like sort of emotionally dysregulated individuals in our society. And I think sort of the more left-wing approach is to aim for a society where we don't. And the more right-wing approach is to try to construct uh, responses to the fact that we do. So mm-hmm. the right – to put it more simply, uh, conservatives – and this this has been shown you know, repeatedly with psychological testing. Conservatives have a lower uh, – a high, a higher threat sensitivity. That's why they tend to be more – Offended or pulled back by certain behaviors or certain things that they think are offensive or they're more pro-military and pro-gun and things like this. They're more concerned with potential threats than, uh, you know, the hippies are. And, and hey, I'm all for universal love, but uh, I also want to keep my family safe. And I recognize that there are monsters out there. And there are always going to be monsters there and I'm not always going to be there to protect my children and we need to have institutions in place to help us do that. We just can't do it on our own and part of the problem of woke among so many other things is that the the kind of Marxist analysis, the the critiquing of our institutions, our legal system with critical legal studies … Or the the sort of racist aspects of our society with critical race theory and everything else, and I I, I wrote a post on how I you know um, on how I think Marxist analysis has become is so has shaped how we think about the world in such profound ways that it's I I would argue that in some way we're all Marxist to a degree we all use Marxist analysis in certain ways it doesn't mean that we're all communists but we all use certain understandings of power dynamics and superstructures and such. But the point is we need our institutions. And Marxist analysis might be fine and good for doing you know, an analysis of, of, of society. But when you take it to this extent that you are not just critiquing flaws in the institutions, but you are essentially anti-institution – or even more fundamental to that, let's say anti-American, like you think that the concept of America is a bad idea, that it is inherently this this colonial oppressor, this this white supremacist nation that is irredeemable, um, you know, then it's only natural that you're going to say be opposed not just to police abuse, but to the existence of police itself and you're not just going to want to critique flaws in the criminal justice system. You're going to want to dismantle the criminal justice system entirely.
0: I, I don't uh, dismiss any of what you're saying, and I take all your points, but I just th- I don't think there's much difference in, the, in their, like, they're using different words, they're using different justifications, but their end goal is the same as all autocratic end goals. They're just out to take control, right? And 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 then do what they think is right. But if if they sit down with Xi or Putin or Orbán or Trump in a room, and they take the the policies off the table and they just say, well, what is the ultimate goal? Can we agree on a goal? And they'll all agree. Yeah, the goal is to dictate what society is, right? To shape it to our uh, to our wants and vision, and not based on people's choices, but based on what we understand the right thing to be is, mm-hmm. right? Like, and, and, then there's, and then what that right thing is is different for different people, uh, although right. it, there's a lot of overlap in terms of like it's, it's a lot of power to them and very little to those who disagree with them, um, and very quickly you have gulags and, 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 and mass murder, but uh, different people are being put in gulags and mass murdered. But the contest is the same, and the end goal is the same. So mm-hmm. I like. So I'm not. I don't. I don't like picking on the woke as a uh, like a particular or some kind of new or or, or the, the only thing even mildly different about them is that they wrote in as this wolf in sheep's clothing, with you know with the. Along with feminists, and along with and pe- <laughs> feminists who I agree with, right, like, uh, like pe- people who were fighting for completely reasonable things, and and uh, like the, who could disagree with being anti-racist, right? Like I mean, that, that sounds like a perfectly rational operation. I don't want to be racist, so I want to be anti-racist. Um, but then the, the, all these projects are, are when you look under the hood, you realize that all they're doing is um it's, it's a giant witch hunt in which anybody who questions any of their uh very questionable uh, beliefs uh beyond the most rote of let's just all be nice to each other and 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 try to treat each other with some decency and equality like that's fine but but most of that is a veneer um so again am I'm, I'm I just I feel like we're just right back to what i said which is that we've got this like this is a base ape operation right dominance and hierarchy that's what apes do some ape is the is the alpha and that ape is going to have his his it's it's a he
1: he he's going to have his way with the apes around him um and uh that includes all sort of you know raping and brutality that's just that's who we are yeah, I, uh, you know, I I, I recently did a, a profile for the Free Press on uh, Oakland activist Seneca Scott. And when I was talking to him, something that he told me was that he doesn't go right or left. He goes up and down, by which he means I don't think he has much utility now for the left-right form of analysis of the political spectrum. It's, so for him, to your point, it's not so much about left or right because they're both kind of doing the same thing in a way. And so he prefers to think of it in terms of, as you said, authoritarian, which you see on both sides, uh, or more driven by by public sentiment. Like what do the people want? What does the public want? So more more liberal democratic and that's the for him that's the real division that matters and i i agree with him i think you're right it's not that the, it's only woke progressives who are authoritarian i think i focus on them a little bit more because i stand on the left and so these yeah. are the these are the people that are sort of destroying the a lot of the um the projects that I care about, like yeah. feminism, for example, is a project that I've always cared very deeply about. Uh, my minor in university, as an undergrad, was uh, well, feminism slash gender studies, whatever they. Um, but it's it, but even back then, and this is way before it, what like there was there wasn't a word woke used in the way that it is now. Um, but even then, I was beginning to see. The seeds of what we now see as a project that is very much uh, anti feminist, that is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And I don't know if that's necessarily unique to this form of progressivism, but it is certainly salient to this form of progressivism where you have, for instance, uh, you know queers for for hamas or or you have you know feminists who are who are are also uh on the on the other side of that fight people who are actively pushing for actively pushing in a direction that is directly antithetical to their own interests you you would have your head sawed off if you were to if you were to go among the people that you are supporting it doesn't that's that's the thing to me. That's really insidious. Is this kind of like um, sexism in the name, like s- sexism uh, marked as feminism, or racism marked as anti-racism? These types of things.
0: It's it's like the gazelles for lions movement, right? Or, or but 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 the, <laughs> the, 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 there is like I don't think it's entirely irrational, right? I can totally I I can believe. A, uh, somebody who, who describes themselves as queer and uh, who says, I support Hamas's objectives, even as I understand that they would kill me, right? But I'm not looking to live amongst them. I just support their objectives vis-a-vis their, you know, h- horrible mistreatment at the hands of the Israeli Isra- Israelis. And, and then they will tell you some song and dance about how these people are, in fact, you know, kind of contained within their own world and they're not you know they they have no desire to affect how the queer community lives in the west and and then maybe they'll tell you something about how somehow the queer muslims in 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 Gaza are somehow happy you know, either being closeted or murdered or something, or maybe they don't think that far. I don't know. Like, I, it's, it's, it's very, I I, I, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, I, it, it's very easy to say, well, they're just morons. But I doubt that they're morons. Most people aren't morons. Most people have a, you know, a, a reasonably good way to think things through. So I'm guessing that they aren't thinking things through very mm-hmm. clearly. And they just, these oppressed, uh, quote, unquote, oppressed Palestinians, well, actually, Palestinians are definitely oppressed. They just think that they're. It's, it's not the Israelis that are oppressing them. That's a whole other conversation. Um, so they see these oppressed people, and they, I think, quite honorably.
1: The brainwashing is so profound there that I've that I've actually argued that I think that the Western these Western leftist activists in these parades that are chanting these things to me, they're worse than Gazans yeah. who support Hamas because yes. they. They know better. They've gone – they haven't been traumatized growing up in Gaza. They haven't been brainwashed since the age of three. They are going to – some of them are going to Cornell and Harvard. They're going to the best universities in the world. They have access to the best news sites in the world and and they're coming to the same conclusions. Uh, this is like the argument that I – this is essentially a, 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 a di- uh, the same argument I made with, with Hitler and Lenin but just – but now, instead of that, it's 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 Gazans and Western leftists. But it's the same yeah. argument structure. It's that the only thing worse than like delusional uh, racism or or hatred is 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 to have that kind of hatred without the delusion. That's why it's so horrifying to see Americans, well educated, you would think, well educated, or Cornell professors or both these types of individuals saying the same things. As for as for the other. Side of the equation that the ones who who I think we actually can have more sympathy for because they 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 don't have access. Uh, that's precisely where you come in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, that's 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 what we're trying to do.